0: We typically do. Uh, We are this week working our way paragraph by paragraph through Paul's first canonical letter to the Corinthian church. And uh, we're kind of right in the middle of uh, the fourth of five major sections in this book. Uh, This particular section has to do with the way that we uh, live, the way that we behave toward one another. Uh, in the gathering of the local church and paul's making a, a sort of an extended argument about uh, specifically the gifts of the holy spirit and uh, that's sort of where we find ourselves in the second half of chapter 12 so let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 12 first corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kind of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we sang together a few minutes ago, your name and the name of your Son is above all names. And we praise you for that. And Father, we want to thank you for, we just want to pause and thank you for a moment for the fact that you give us your name. That you call us your children. That you say we are your sons and daughters, not because of anything righteous that we've done, not because we were born in a certain country or speak a certain language or or have a a certain uh, family history or because we work a certain kind of job or because of anything like that, but only because of the work of your son only because of the regenerating power of your spirit. It's all you, God. You've done all the work. All we've done is opened up our hand to receive the free gift of salvation. Lord, we bring nothing to the table. You alone deserve the praise and the glory, and we praise you and thank you that you have called us your own. Lord, we're eager and zealous, and we know that you are as well to see many more turn from destruction toward the living God. Father, we know that there are many in our own community, perhaps even in this room today, who have yet to bow the knee in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use your word this morning, preached here and across our city, to bring many to faith in Christ. Lord, I want to pray specifically for... Palo Pinto First Baptist Church, and Pastor Dan Ferris, Lord, as he exposits your word this morning that you would give him power and freedom and that your spirit would mercifully, powerfully, mightily apply the teachings of the gospel and the demands of your word to those who hear. And Father, I pray that you would expand the ministry of that church in that community. Lord, as we gather around your word today, I pray that you'd open up our ears and and, and our hearts to listen, and not just listen, but respond in faith and obedience to what you have for us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Beginning in the 1930s, musicians began using vacuum tube amplifiers in order to increase the volume of their guitars in comparison with other instruments the acoustic guitar is kind of quiet so i imagine that initially at least there were musicians who just wanted people to hear what they were playing the problem though is that on a tube amplifier it's easy to increase the gain to a point where you go beyond the design limitations of the amp What's more, amplifiers also have delicate components, and so moving them from gig to gig would occasionally cause damage with the electronic components or ruptured sound cones. And finally, the technology of these early systems was imprecise enough that the sound coming from the speaker would occasionally feed back through the pickup fastened on the front of the guitar. And uh, so the, the result of that was that the sound that the audience was hearing was a little different from the sound that was coming actually from the instrument itself. I would speculate that in those early days for a young musician who didn't make a lot of money playing in restaurants and clubs, it must have been a little frustrating dealing with the limitations of a guitar pickup and a tube amplifier. The sound distortion was a bug that I'm sure plenty of sound engineers tried their best to do away with. But it wouldn't be long before many guitarists realized that what might have been considered a bug was actually a feature, a tool in their toolbox, you might say. Distortion could be used to communicate the raw emotions inherent in certain musical genres. Blues musicians like Junior Bernard and Buddy Guy began to experiment with distortion in the middle of the 20th century. They turned up the gain and poked holes in the sound cone of their amplifiers in order to produce a grittier, more soulful sound. The trend quickly caught on, and distortion became a hallmark feature of the most impactful music of the era. By 1969, distortion would play an important role. In what many believe was the most iconic moment of the entire generation, that moment when guitarist Jimi Hendrix stood up in front of a crowd of thousands and played the Star Spangled Banner, producing sounds with his one-of-a-kind Stratocaster that many felt were suggestive of the bombs, missiles, and machine guns of the Vietnam War. Nowadays, electronics companies make a lot of money off of distortion. They sell pedals and other effects to musicians who want to reproduce a certain type of sound. Sometimes, what seems like a bug is actually a feature, a benefit. And this doesn't just apply to guitar amps. The phrase itself actually originated in computer programming. There was one early uh, example an early game developer realized that his program crashed and threw an error message whenever that, uh, somebody tried to quit the program. So instead of trying to fix the bug, he just changed the message from the error and, and it said something like, Thank you for playing, and he just went on with his day. The, the feature or the, the bug became a feature. Well, in today's text, the apostle continues to emphasize that there is one Holy Spirit operating powerfully in the lives of believers in the church, but that he wisely distributes gifts in a variety of ways. Each believer has a little bit different experience practically of the Holy Spirit's power. Many believers, the Corinthians included, might have been tempted to view this dynamic as a bug. Uh, an error, a frustrating wrinkle in the fabric of the church's unity. Like, why all this variety? Why can't we all be the same? Why can't the Holy Spirit give similar gifts to everybody? It would be more fair, right? But what Paul is going to argue is that the diversity in unity, this variety, this manyness and oneness, is not a bug, but a feature, a benefit belonging to the family of God and specifically to the local church. It seems to me that this particular reality in the local church is yet another evidence of the wisdom of a good and loving God. And there are four reasons why I say this. Four ways in which the unity and variety of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are a feature, not a bug. He says you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Why is that a good thing? Well, in the first place, from verses 12 through 14, because there are no second-class believers. Because there are no second-class believers. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Chew on that for a minute. All of us. Every believer, equally, by the Spirit of God, is plunged into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That has profound implications for us today. Paul has already made the point that the Spirit distributes the gifts with variety, but he's still one in the same Spirit. But here he takes the concept a little bit further. He says, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, and so it is with Christ. Now that's important. He didn't say, so it is with the church. He specifically used these words. He says, so it is with Christ christ in other words there's a a a mystical mysterious but very real organic connection between jesus himself and jesus's church like he identifies with us he is the man christ jesus that is as a man he has a physical body just like you and i do that body resides at the right hand of god and one day he will return bodily to the earth to reign forever and ever But in another sense, the church is his body here on earth. The the point is that Christ identifies with us. That he becomes what he unites with us organically by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the sanctuary of Christ on earth today, so too are we his body. We are joined to him at a deep and profound level. But he isn't just saying we're one with Christ. He's saying that just like a body functions with different body parts, limbs, and organs, and and yet it's one body, the same thing is going to happen in the church. You see, the fact is that this imagery of a body with different limbs and organs functioning together as one was actually a pretty common way for people to talk in, in the ancient world. This was something that would have not, it wouldn't have been unfamiliar to Paul or to the Corinthian believers. Writers that were probably known to Paul People like Epictetus or Seneca occasionally referred to the citizens of a community as though they were parts of a body, and they drew analogies between this or that socioeconomic group and different parts of the body. A famous example is a speech given by uh, a Roman senator named Menenius Agrippa and recorded by historian Livy, whose works were widely known to educated people in Paul's day. Paul probably knew about this example. In his speech, Agrippa, following the typical contours of the metaphor, likened the, the common people to the hands and the feet, you know, the, the parts of the body that we employ to go out and do work, right? And, and he said, kind of, you, you common people, you're kind of the hands and the feet, the the worker parts of the body. And, uh, but, the, the, you know, so your, your job is to reap and to sow and to, and to take the person where he wants to go. But there's also a stomach in the body. And... Uh, Agrippa likened that stomach to the rich people, the important people in the city. And he says, listen, if you are one of the commoners, if you are one of the hands or the feet, the temptation might be to say, hey, the stomach doesn't do anything but take. Let's get rid of the stomach. But he says, you can't do that because the stomach actually feeds the rest of the body. And so the whole point of Agrippa's analogy of the body is to say, you common people, you hands and feet, stay in your spot keep working your fingers to the bone keep paying your taxes because when you fill the coffers of the rich the powerful the important you're actually helping the community so that's just the normal way that people in the ancient world thought about a community of people as a body and paul would have known about that but notice that paul takes this image in the exact opposite direction did you see what he does Instead of saying, hey, you common people, stay in your place, work hard and give, a lot of, give all of your resources and all of the, the work that you're doing, the, the products of your labor to the rich people and the powerful, he's not saying uh, stay in your spot, he's saying we're Christ's body, so even if you're that quote unquote important person, you rely on all the other parts of the body. And all the parts of the body share equal dignity and importance in the body of Christ because we are all a part of Christ, no matter who you are. Do you see the wisdom of this? that the Holy Spirit distributes gifts in varied ways so that no person might say that they are more or less than somebody else because each person that comes to the local church looks around and has to say, I'm just one part of this larger body and all of us share in the identity of saying, I, we're the body of Christ. We're all one in him. There are no second class Believers, no super-Christians and sub-Christians. They are just Christians. By the way, this passage also rules out so-called second-blessing or deeper-life teaching. Uh, many faith traditions teach something like this. You, you believe in Christ, you're born again, you have kind of the base-level package of Christianity, and then later on in life, you have a second experience, a, a second blessing, uh, maybe uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, And once you've had that second experience, you reach a higher level of Christianity and you've arrived and the struggles become easier. And some would even say that the evidence of that is that you start speaking in tongues. And Paul essentially says here that that type of thinking is not accurate. When you receive Christ, when you are born again, when you become a believer, You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have Christ. You have the comforter. You are part of the body of Christ. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's true of all believers. Paul does not make any exceptions. Sure, there are moments when you feel closer and moments when you feel less close to God. There are moments when obedience comes easier and when obedience is more of a struggle. And there is supposed to be Gradual growth in the Christian life. That is normal. God wants you to grow. Some people are further along in that growth than others. But if you think that there is some moment in time in this life, in this world, when a believer sort of arrives... And those struggles become easier and where we have this sort of Christian perfection where I'm totally consecrated to the Lord and I'm not a worldly Christian anymore and I don't have to struggle anymore. Think again. You're going to be very discouraged if you think that way because you'll reach this plane of like euphoria. Like I've arrived. I've got there. And then that's going to feel that way for a couple days. And then your life is going to hit you. And you're going to realize that, no, I still need to struggle. I still need to fight against the flesh. I still need to put on the armor of God. I still need to stop the darts of the enemy, the lies of Satan. You're always going to have to live by faith in this life. You're always going to have to arm yourself with his armor. You, uh, you will always have to grow, but if you're a Christian, you have all of the Holy Spirit. There is no exception to that. The Holy Spirit's presence is the privilege, the gift, of every believer without exception. So you don't need to attend a special seminar or listen to a special kind of preacher or go to youth camp or Bible college or a marriage conference in order to have the Holy Spirit. And I'm not putting down any camps or marriage conferences or anything like that. I think they're wonderful. The only point I'm making is that if you're in Christ, you are not second class. You are in Christ all the way and you have the Holy Spirit. You have the things you need to grow in him. It all comes down to whether or not you're trusting in the work of the Lord Jesus. If you can say, Christ alone is my hope, Christ's death took away my judgment, his resurrection defines my future, then you have full, complete, unhindered, unqualified access to the living God. If you don't have Christ, then you have nothing. But if you do have Christ, you have all things. You are immersed in the Holy Spirit and you have all the most wonderful holy, a relationship with the most wonderful holy being in existence. See, the fact that we all look a little different is not a bug, it's a feature. How can I say that? Because regardless of the specific gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you today, you are not a second-class believer. There are no second-class believers. We are all in Christ. Christ. second reason we can say that the diversity and unity of the local church is a feature, not a bug, according to verses 15 through 20, is because we need you. Because we need you. Let me show you what I mean. Paul says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Imagine one of the elders coming up to you and telling you, you know, you're a foot. I'm sorry. Uh, but we've determined, we had an elders meeting, we determined you are a foot. And so now you know what part you play in the body of Christ. If they do that, you know, come talk to me. That's, that would be weird but imagine for the sake of the illustration that they do. Not exactly flattering, but in the ancient world, think about this, that would have been even more so. Feet are dirty, they're smelly, they look weird. In the ancient world, at least mine do. In the ancient world, if you showed someone the bottom of your foot? Some cultures are still this way. You might as well have spit in their face. When ancient writers reach for a euphemism to refer even to even more sensitive areas of the body, they would say foot or feet. Uh, You didn't want people looking at your feet, and you certainly didn't want to see anybody else's foot. Paul says if the ears should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. But ears are ugly. I mean, they're all twisted and tangled up. Some of them have hairs in them. Some of them are really big you have to clean them out you do know that right (laughs) but here's what paul's saying you don't cut them off they're still part of your body And, and as we all know they play an important role we ought to use them more than we do right Living without ears, living without feet, that's a serious handicap. In the church in Corinth, you had people who just weren't as in the middle of everything as other people. They had to work long hours and come racing into the gathering at the last minute. There were slaves who did menial, shameful jobs. They had Christians who had an ignominious past with pagan idols or even prostitution. There were Christians who didn't bring much to the potluck because they themselves were living hand to mouth. Christians who lacked social skills, they weren't accustomed to navigating the small talk and the politeness of a gathering of a few dozen people and they didn't, they didn't know how to handle themselves. Christians who probably felt like a foot or an ear because they didn't speak in tongues or prophesy or work miracles like others that they had heard about. And these folks may have been tempted to think, I guess I don't belong here. I don't prophesy. I don't speak in tongues. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of social connections. I bring a lot of baggage with me on Sunday mornings. I'm I'm just a slave in some cases. I'm I'm not even free to determine how I spend my day. Maybe God's smiles doesn't reach me quite as much as it does another person at least they all tolerate me but i doubt they want me around you know a lot of christians go through this and believe that they don't belong and i can sympathize there was a season not too long ago when i was working a lot of hours where i had a lot of responsibilities uh, just with with work and my family And, you know, I just didn't have a lot of uh, extra margin for church things. I would come to the gathering of the church and uh, whatever it was that I brought to the table, it seemed like somebody else brought that same thing but did a better job. And I kind of went through a season where I asked myself, well, why am I here? Like, what good is it that I am here? What good am I doing? I get it. But listen, the voice that whispers... There's no point in you being here. You don't belong here. You're not a part of the body. You're just a stinky foot. That is not the voice of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. That's the voice of the enemy. Here's what that voice is really saying. God isn't really good. God isn't really wise. He cares about some people, but he can't care about everybody. There's only so much grace and mercy and kindness and acceptance to go around. And it just so happens, sorry, that in your case, you've slipped his mind. See what I'm saying? Your impulse to say, I'm a foot, I'm not, I must not be a part of the body, isn't really a statement about you. It's a statement impugning God's character. You're saying something about God. But what we have to believe by faith is that God is who he says he is. He's not limited. He's not like everybody else that you know. He isn't trying his best, but not always quite measuring up in in terms of his ability to love all the people that belong to him. No, the Holy Spirit didn't make a mistake when he brought you into the body of Christ. Whether you're a foot or an ear or anybody else, we need you. God arranged the members of the body in this way, wisely as he chose and guess what if everybody were an eye or a hand or whatever it is that body part that you think is the best then that would be a weird looking body that would be a monster God isn't making a monster he's building the body of Christ don't deny your local church your presence your energies your abilities because when you do that you are stealing something that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ Something that he bought with his blood. He puts you here for a reason and you may not always understand why. That is for him to worry about. You just show up and you walk in obedience and watch what he does. See, the diversity and unity of the local church is not a bug, it's a feature because first of all, there are no second class believers in the church and secondly, because we need you. Third reason. From verses 21 through 26. 26. Because you need us. You need us. You say, I'm an eye. I. I have an important job. I see other thing, I see things people don't see. I know things that other people don't know. I'm easy to look at. I'm the featured attraction. I don't need anybody else. Wait a second. The eye cannot say to the hand, Paul says, I have no need of you nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Is this the way that we treat our bodies? It's not the way that we treat our our physical bodies, right? The more presentable parts and the less presentable parts are all connected to the same body. In fact, as Paul points out, this is the way that we treat our our physical body. The most sensitive, the most unpresentable parts, we treat with the greatest honor because we cover them up. We're modest in those areas, right? At least we're supposed to be. So, as Paul says, we treat these less presentable parts with greater honor. And here's the point that Paul is making to the Corinthians. The strong needed the weak just as much as the weak needed the strong. The guy who owns the house in which the church was gathering... Needed the church just as much as everybody else. The preacher who can keep everyone's attention for half an hour needs the church just as much as everybody else. Even the people who exhibit these spectacular gifts they're prophesying, they're healing, they're speaking in tongues even those people they couldn't say to the rest of the church, Oh, I don't need you, I'm good. No, they needed the church as well. Here's why. This is a wonderful plan, the the diversity and unity of the church. It's because you need us. And if that was true in Corinth, then it's true today. The Holy Spirit set it up this way. The church needs you, even if you're a stinky foot. But guess what? You need the church too. There's an epidemic in the American church of Christians who reach a certain life stage where they begin to tell themselves they do not need the local church. I have my family, I'm paying all my bills, I have my health, I have a copy of the Bible, I can listen to Christian music on Spotify or on the radio or whatever. I can go on the internet and access sermons from like a thousand different preachers. I don't need the local church. That's not true. You do need the local church. You know what it's called when you say you don't need the body of Christ when in fact you do need the body of Christ? There's a very simple word for that, pride. It's pride. I don't need the body of Christ. Yes, you do. That is the exact opposite attitude from the one that began your Christian life. Do you remember that? When you became a Christian, what was your mindset? You said, I'm a sinner. I can't pay the price for that. And even if I could, I can't stop sinning. So I am stuck. I am on the road to destruction unless somebody comes and and saves me Unless somebody comes and rescues me, I can't do it on my own. I am done. I am hopeless. I am condemned, destined for wrath and for a miserable eternity. And and you called out to Christ and you said, Jesus, please save me or I am going to die. You know the humility that that took? Where's that? Where's the humility that you once knew? You want to end up like David who started out so well and then got comfortable and proud and neglected his duties and then ended up sleeping with another man's wife and committing murder? Started with pride. You want to end up like Solomon who started out with a teachable spirit and became the wisest man living but stopped listening and became so self-reliant that his heart turned away from the one true God. Do you want to be like Paul's companions who started out being so useful to Paul and so committed to the ministry who at the end of, of Paul's life, he, he, he was throwing up his hands and saying, they've all left. Do you think that you're immune to the enemy's arrows, that you'll always be as strong and secure as you imagine you feel today? How many funerals do God's people have to attend for which we say, he, he, he used to be so eager to serve in God's church, and then we don't say the part that we know 30 years ago. No, you need God's people, friends. You need all the other parts of the body, even if you're strong, even if you've got a lot of spiritual gifts, even if you feel secure. God is so wise to build variety into the fabric of the church's life because it reminds us that we need each other and no one is an island to him or herself. We all need one another. This is the way God has put the body of Christ together. The members that are weaker actually warrant greater honor, more careful treatment, and the result is that there's no division in the body and the members of the body care for one another. Like think about the pinky toe, not a very prominent feature on the body, right? But you know, you know where I'm going with this. The, the pinky toe, you don't think about it most days. But when it comes into contact with the table leg in the middle of the night, Now, all of a sudden, your whole body is focused on that one part of the body. One little toe gets hurt, and yet the whole body pays attention to it. Or think about, uh, on on the positive side, think about your taste buds on the tip of your tongue. They're just tiny things, so small. And you might be tempted to to think they're irrelevant. They seem almost unnecessary because of how small they are. But when they come into contact with a warm, mouth-watering morsel of mom's homemade biscuits and gravy... Just the right combination of crunchy and soft and buttery and flaky and salty and spicy and savory, then it's not just your tongue, it's your whole body. You just soar, right? I don't know about you, but that's the way I am when I taste certain things. A healthy body, here's the point I'm trying to make a healthy body works as one. One part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. One part of the body rejoices the whole body rejoices. This is what Paul's talking about. The balance between individual members and the unity of the body is so wise. It's a feature, not a bug. And the way that we know that is because there are no second-class believers because we need you, because you need us. And God takes us and he puts us together in such a way that we, when we're suffering, we do it together. When we're rejoicing, we do it together. But there's a fourth reason why this is such a wise Set up from verses 27 through 31 because we all need the word. Because we all need the word. So, where are you getting that? Okay, the, the Corinthians have been operating under the mistaken assumption that spectacular gifts meant one person was more spiritual, more close to God than the next person. Paul has challenged that assumption. Just because you speak in tongues doesn't necessarily mean that you're more spiritual than a person who does not. But if we were to conclude then that there's no ordering of priority among the gifts, then we would be taking it a little further than Paul wants to take it. No, there is a priority. There is an ordering of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Corinthians would have put speaking in tongues first. But where does Paul put speaking in tongues? In this list. Last. And this is the second time he's done so. That's on purpose. And by the way, he's going to give us the reason why when we get to chapter 14. But for now, notice how Paul ranks the gifts. They're listed in sequential order. First, apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and then these others. The rationale behind this is, I think, pretty obvious. The apostles receive a commission directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Their ministry is primary. It's foundational. Their role is to lay the foundation for the establishment of a new people of God. We talked about that last week. The prophets follow close behind. Their ministry is not primarily—this is a major misunderstanding among many Christians—the prophets, their ministry is not primarily to predict the future and tell you, like, which stocks to pick or who's going to win the election or anything like that, okay? That's not their main ministry. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that that's the case. Under the Old Covenant, the prophets were like covenant prosecutors, Indicting the people of God, convicting the people of God, announcing judgment, offering mercy and comfort to those who uh, repented. This is the role of the prophets in the Old Covenant. If you go back to your Old Testament, you'll see example after example after example of that very thing. The prophets of the New Covenant, the prophets of our age after the resurrection of Christ, function in similar fashion. Under the powerful guidance of the Holy Spirit, they command... They convict, they challenge, they exhort, they encourage, they comfort, they support the people of God. Through their ministry of the word, the Holy Spirit captures the hearts of sinners and keeps the saints in the love of God. Uh, That's the ministry of the prophet. It comes right on the heels of the ministry of the apostles. And then thirdly, the ministry of teachers. And you can follow the logic of this, right? What does a teacher do? A teacher comes in, he explains. He illustrates, he applies the things that, the, that have already been communicated by the apostles and the prophets. The teachers explain the truth so that the people of God might understand, persevere in the faith, and advance the mission of the gospel themselves. Teachers differ from prophets in that their ministry is more to explain and illustrate than it is to challenge and convict. Now, notice that each of the first of these three gifts are actually people, That God gives to the church. In other words, Paul's not saying, at least in these verses, he's not talking about a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit gives to an individual. He's talking about a gift that God gives to the church, and the gift is the individual. He gives the church the apostles, the prophets, and the teachers. But these three first gifts all share something in common. They involve the ministry of the Word of God. Did you notice that? The rest of the gifts support and validate the ministry of the Word of God. Miracles and healings get the attention of the unbeliever. They demonstrate to him that the God who reveals himself in the Bible is no mute idol but the living God. Helpers, administrators, serve the growing church they build structures that enable the church to thrive for years to come and then lastly the gift of tongues builds up an individual as we'll see in chapter 14 but consider the implications of this the corinthians were saying the best gifts are the spectacular ecstatic gifts The the most spiritual people, those closest to God, are the ones who speak in tongues. And everybody else, when somebody's speaking in tongues, everybody else ought to just step, step back, listen, be quiet, and let them do their thing. Paul disagrees. There are no first and second class and third class believers. If you have Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. And all the promises of God belong to you in the church. We need you and you need us. This is the wisdom of God and this is the wonderful variety that's not a bug but a feature of God's glorious design, but that's not to say that we shouldn't prioritize. God gave the church certain individuals who powerfully minister his word. First among them is the apostles. Secondly are the prophets. Uh, I'm inclined to think that the prophets are still given to the church today, not so we can know who will win the election or which stocks we're supposed to buy. These are people whose primary job is to proclaim the truths of the new covenant, anointed with power from on high, to convict and to comfort and to call men to repent. These men have the special spirit-given ability to break down the defenses of rebels with the sharp two-edged sword of the preached word. Third among them are the teachers whose job it is to explain and expound. And everyone who is not an apostle... Right? And we talked about this last week. There were 12 apostles and Paul. Everyone who is not a prophet, everyone who is not a teacher, our role is to support and to strengthen the ministry of the word because it is the word of God that creates new life. It has always been this way from the beginning of creation. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, God says, and do not return, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall, shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is just one of many examples in the Bible where God says, listen, I'm going to bless the ministry of my word. I'm going to build my church through the ministry of the word. This is the Word of God that draws the sinner back from the brink of judgment and advances the kingdom of God on the earth. Not the miracles primarily, not the healings primarily, not the helps or the administration primarily, not even the speaking in tongues primarily, but the Word. And the Holy Spirit, in His infinite wisdom, has so designed the church that every single believer joined together with the rest of the body is instrumental in supporting the ministry of the word, God's gracious revelation of himself, his gracious invitation to all everywhere to repent and believe. Think of it this way. In battle, uh, there are frontline soldiers, and then there is a whole host of, of others who support those soldiers on the front lines, those advanced patrols, those in the trenches, so to speak this vast support system that stands behind and above that line in order to support them in their struggle. And, and So let me ask you a question. Which is more important? The infantryman that's in a foxhole on the front line or the officer flying a state-of-the-art aircraft overhead? Wh- which one's more important? Both are critical, right? Neither is really more important than the other. But that guy in the aircraft, he'd better recognize that his job is to support the advances that are taking place on the ground. Otherwise, the whole operation is going to fail. He's got to humble himself, do his job, do his duty, not so that he'll get the glory, but so that the mission might succeed. You see where I'm going with this, I think. In God's church, it is the ministry of the word that's primary, period. And he's put you here He's given you gifts. He's given me gifts that he desires for us to use to build up the body. Each of us has a different gift, a different role, a different function in service of a very specific aim so that men and women everywhere might come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, bow the knee in faith and become disciples and follow him. Like the mission is clear and without this, it doesn't happen. This is what God uses. So when you're serving, this is what this means, just practically. When you're serving, when you're caring for babies in the nursery, when you're getting your home ready and wiping down tables and sweeping the floor in your home, getting ready for community group, when you're trying to find a time for your ministry team to meet and and plan the budget for next year, when you're wiping off a table in the fellowship hall, remember that it is all about a very specific pointed mission that God gives, that all these things come together and support the ministry of this book, the ministry of the word. Because I want to do anything, anything that I can, everything that I possibly can to get all the obstacles out of the way and to serve this up un. Uh, mixed with anything else, okay? Not man's opinions, not the distracting things of the world, not the priorities of the world. I want to remove all the distractions that I possibly can so that all people everywhere can hear God's message. And if we can keep that in the front of our minds, if we can keep that the main thing, then all the fretting and worrying about, I wonder if this is my spiritual gift or that's my spiritual gift, it becomes a lot easier to manage all of that because we recognize that there's a, that there's a, a strategy behind it. So ask yourself this, what can I do today to enhance, support, underscore, prepare for the ministry of the word of God? If you can connect what you do in God's church to the support of the ministry of the word, even if it feels like it's, you know, just a small thing, then I promise you what you're doing is not a small thing. Because here's the thing. If one soul, one soul follows that pathway that God's used you to create to believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is of infinite value. Because that one person is going to live somewhere forever. What that means is the little sweeping up of crickets, okay, before the service, which I know some of you have done, these small things, there is no limit to the value that they have. No limit. Because God takes these things, he gives them as gifts to his church so that the church can fulfill the mission so that people can come to Christ. And we all play a role in that, even if it's a small role. You know, the Holy Spirit is so wise. He's so much smarter than we are. He knows what's best for his church. He's distributed his gifts with variety, not so that you might feel like a second-class believer, but to show you, to show all of us that we need each other. You need the church, the church needs you, and that we all need the word. So let's support the ministry of the word today. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your wisdom we rejoice in in knowing that you have cared so faithfully for your church that all the times we worry about the future and how are we going to pay for the building and how are we going to um you know fix this ministry problem or this ministry program or whatever it is father you've already thought about it and you're taking care of your church it might not be in a way that we expect It might not be in a way that we would if we were in charge. But we want to thank you that we're not in charge. You're in charge. We want to thank you for giving spiritual gifts to each member of the body of Christ, Lord. And and I, I just ask that you would show each one of us. That you would convince each one of us that we need each other. And that you have put us here for a very specific reason and that we need to be serving you with our spiritual gifts. Father, I pray these things in the name of your son Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to invite you-